Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I speak to Jane Kamensky, professor of history at Harvard University, about her book, A Revolution in Color, The World of John Singleton Copley, about the place of the American Revolution in American history and in public discourse, and about various other topics related to the profession of history and civil discourse. Thank you very much for visiting us here at ASU, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Jane, your last book or most recent book was A Revolution in Color, The World of John Singleton Copley, which was published in about 2016, I believe. How did you start working on this period of time and on this famous painter from uh, Boston from the 1700s? I started out actually working on Gilbert Stuart, huh. the painter of Washington. Okay. Uh, the great painter of Washington, the painter of the Washington on your dollar bill, uh-huh. and the full-length Lansdowne portrait where he's standing amid symbols of the early American Republic. The book I did before this called The Exchange Artist traced the rise and fall of the early American economy through the life of a con man named Andrew Dexter Jr. Oh, wow. And in 1808, at the apex of his pyramid scheme, <laughs> Dexter had a portrait painted by Gilbert Stuart. Uh-huh. And I was interested in the relationship between sort of self-making, making the economy, and representing oneself on mm-hmm. canvas. Absolutely. What did it mean to be peddling that product? Mm-hmm. And what did it mean to be buying that product? And I thought, you know, you could tell a lot of the story of the early United States and its sort of tiny and shaky and protean economy where paper money is doing the same thing that Stuart is doing, right? He's sort of representing value in two dimensions Mm -hmm. and hoping to make people believe in it. So I started working on a biography of Stuart. Stuart proved impossible to treat as the center of a book. Um, Why? Because what survived, you know, he, he, he painted thousands, even tens of thousands of canvases society portraitist who sort of cranks stuff out, often unfinished, finished in other hands. But he he could not, like, if he was a person who could have kept records, he would have had an entirely different arc of life. He was a sort of dissolute and reprobate character. So there were, you know, two pages of an account book huh. and, a, you know, scribble on the back of a cocktail napkin and, not a, enough and a laundry a list. I started looking at people who could surround Stuart and speak when he was only painting. And there was a whole cohort of artists from the British American colonies who went to London to fashion themselves in the period between the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. So Trumbull is there and sort of lesser known named Matthew Pratt and Mm -hmm. Copley is there and Stuart gets the last boat out of Dodge before the blockades. Wow! So I thought perhaps a cohort study of these men, one woman, who are taking the main chance to go home to London Uh in a period where the empire is drawing more tightly together Mm -hmm. after the Seven Years' War and make themselves as artists, perhaps returning to the colonies, perhaps not. And then it became clear as I was trying to write this more choral work 
that the person who was always soloing was Copley. I find him an extraordinary painter, but he also had the unusual quality of being an incredibly perceptive and committed witness on paper, which is what a not what an art historian needs, but what a historian needs. There are a whole set of accidents that make that true. Back when I was working on the Stuart version and I would complain about Stuart not writing, friends would say, you know, well, nobody ever complains that you don't paint, uh-huh. right? Like they really Good are point. different kinds of intellection. I think Copley had extraordinary you know, we could call it American ambition. So there's a yearning that goes into his writing. There are accidents of distance where he spends long periods of his life far from people who are important to him, either affectively or intellectually. And I often say, you know, historians love it when people are sundered Mm -hmm. um, because they have to, you know... Because then there's uh, correspondence. Right. Long, long happy marriage. We spent 55 years in the same house. um, (laughs) There's nothing to read. produce a wonderful human experience, but nothing to read. Yeah. Yeah. Do you sometimes wonder about future historians with all these emails and text messages and things flying back and forth? Absolutely. I mean, you may know that part of my job at Harvard is as the director of the Schlesinger Library, which is Mm -hmm. our special collections library on the history of American women. And my colleagues who are archivists are thinking professionally about this challenge Mm -hmm. of, you know, we live in a moment where the record is at once too much and too little, right? Right. People post more photographs every day now than in the cumulative history of photography before Instagram took off. You know, the, the number of emails and text messages, which can survive, right, can be preserved, but finding the signal in the noise is a different kind of research and reading than an 18th centuryist like me has grown up doing. Right, and also the mode of discourse is so different. I mean, when you fire off an email in three or four lines, it's completely different to sitting down and composing a letter where you're concentrating on making it legible, on getting the spelling correct, on, you know, you might not be able to send another letter for many weeks. It might take many weeks to get there. You just, it's a completely different mode of communication. I think that last part around timing is really important facet for understanding the past and for understanding the American Revolution in particular or or other imperial events that take place. We understand that these things take place across vast distance, but I think our own communication is so instantaneous that we forget that vast distance means vast time. You are General Thomas Gage. You witness insurrectionary action around you in Boston or in New York, it's terrifying and it suggests a need to shift policy. You write immediately to London. Your letter might get there in 28 or 29 days. Somebody has to think about it and talk about it, get an army of clerks together, as the British Empire loves doing in triplicate so that reply survives. It takes two months coming back. So between the thought and the response, is always three months, and it might be five, right? Or it might be lost. The ability to, you know, on the one hand, to sort of sustain a relationship over that and to write in a way that is for intensive, repeated, but also shared reading, that's a different kind of power than email. But the the ability to respond to changing factors on the ground with a government so distant, I think is a facet of the decay of imperial relations that is really hard to get our hands on. 
And surely it must have meant that these colonial governors or whatever their titles were, military senior officials and things, must have had a huge amount of power, right? They must have been delegated a huge amount of discretion to respond to events as they saw fit. Or but is, they, was that but not they the case? also, I mean, I, I think they also exist in a chain of command that goes all the way up to the king. So they have power on the ground, but they also have allegiance and a desire for input. It's a kind of impossible situation. And the, you know, the the governors by the 1770s, most of the governors in Britain's colonies are, are royally appointed. They, they weren't all that way earlier in the colonial period. The governors exist sort of strangely in multiple worlds, so that a Thomas Hutchinson in Massachusetts is very much of Massachusetts and its local traditions, its emphasis on legislative power, and at least in a, in a kind of diluted representational way, the power of the people, and especially the power of the people over the purse, the commons, but also exists in a world of patronage and preferment that are quite distant, you know, that w- whose powers are, are quite distant. And um, I think there's an agony in that, uh, especially for people like Hutchinson and Copley, and, and Copley and Hutchinson are part of the same extended family by marriage. You know, they, they feel somewhat out of place in the colonies. Hutchinson's place in the colonies becomes literally impossible. And then they go home to London and they're out of place there too. It's a, you would have broader responses to this as a political scientist than I would. There, it seems something characteristic of the colonial condition to me to be sort of fully oneself and fully in one's powers nowhere. Well, I think that as a New Zealander, I can kind of relate because when I moved to Oxford after I finished my PhD, in some ways it seemed like moving home because I'd been in America for so long. Moving back to Oxford seemed everything was so familiar to me from New Zealand. And yet then when you scratch the surface, everything was completely different, not just in how people regarded you. I mean, that was also a shock that everyone that I met in England knew that I was a New Zealander, not an Australian. Whereas in America, America? of course, many people thought I was British or Scottish or Irish or something from my accent. Whereas in England, everyone knew exactly where I was from. And there were so many things that were so familiar. And yet it was a completely different place. It definitely wasn't wasn't my home. So I can sort of relate to that even today as I guess a sort of a colonial, I don't know, child of the far-flung reaches of the dying remnants of the British Empire. But it is an interesting question that I wanted to ask you about American identity and what it even meant at that time. You already talked a little bit about Copley and uh, Hutchison, the sort of elites, I would say. Would you say that this existing in two worlds also extended down to the sort of the mass of the population, or were they much more grounded in an American or Massachusetts identity at the time of the revolution? It's a great question. Copley's not an elite. He's a handmaiden to elites. He grew up in quite a straightened circumstances. Grew up in very straightened circumstances. died when he was very young. Yep. And he, I mean, it's amazing Single story. mother on the wharves, right? He, he's earning a living, raise, like supporting the family as a painter yeah. of all things. By a when te- he's by 13, teens, yeah. I couldn't be- this is a rem- honestly remarkable story. It's amazing. I loved it. Thank you. So what the British colonies are for free people, 
in the 18th century is an engine of tremendous mobility, geographic, economic, and especially demographic, right? It's just, a, it's a demographic engine like nothing the world has ever seen. And I think, you know, back to the heart of your question, the first part of people's identity was local, right? I am from Massachusetts. I am from Boston or the county of Essex. I'm from Albemarle. And then the second piece is British. Mm -hmm. So I'm from Massachusetts in the great and glorious British Empire, Empire of Liberty. They share a common experience as free people of greater mobility than you would have any place else on earth, right? And there are famous British travelers accounts who lampoon this, the, you know, the people who are drinking tea, the genteel drink in the most rude and rustic taverns. Uh -huh. There's an aspirational quality. People own land who couldn't have gotten jobs sweeping streets in London. In part, this is because the unfree class in the colonies is categorically without capacity for achieving their own liberty under the laws. Slavery makes this economic mobility possible for even people who are poor and white and would have been in very limited means in England or Ireland. I think especially after the Seven Years' War, this great global victory for Britain, which North American forces have helped to achieve and North American functionaries have supported those armies on the ground, wanting to think of themselves as true, fully enfranchised Britons who just happened to live someplace else, right? It's, it's not Derbyshire, it's New England, but it's, it's just the same. And then having pointed out that no, they're categorically different in ways that legislation has to figure out, mm -hmm. at least as they experience it, is a sort of acute version of that colonial pain. I think with the ambitions that come from being in a place where more mobility is possible, even though they really wouldn't call it American until 1772, 1773. Right, yeah, there's an interesting part of the book where you discuss this term American and how it's used at this time, which is really interesting. You know, in the 1750s and people doing early quantitative analysis of newspapers, content analysis of newspapers, did, you know, definitive work that still stands two generations ago. In the 1750s, Americans meant natives. Mm -hmm. um, it's the way that Locke used it, right? By the 1770s, there's something in the common oppression of Americans as various kinds of imperial reformers see it that begins to give a shared language, a shared experience, a shared identity. And part of this shared identity, it seems to me, from the book is that these artists who traveled to Europe would present themselves as American, which was something kind of new. Is that correct? That Copley and some of these others, that when they would go to London, they would be objects of curiosity precisely because they were American, right? And the things they were painting and their backgrounds were therefore kind of interesting to the London's. Yeah, I think that that is, it's a difficult card to play, uh -huh. right? To be the courtly rustic. The person who plays it unquestionably best in all the world is Benjamin Franklin, right? right? You know, he's the, the sophisticated backwoodsman, the printer with homely wisdom, much of which is his own and some of which is stolen, who takes London and Paris by storm. And people want him for the sort of, you know, it's an incredibly clever performance of seeming naturalness that attaches to being from the away place. 
the painter Benjamin West is pretty darn good at it. Uh, Franklin-like in his ability to be, on the one hand, an anxious courtier, properly supplicant, the right suits, the right form of address, to actually live in the royal household. He becomes a kind of man-in-waiting in the retinue. He has rooms at Windsor Castle. And on the other hand, the communicator of the exotic who's traveling with some native artifacts, who's giving a sort of verisimilitude experience in the Wild West that must make people sort of shiver at once with the frisson of you are there, but now you can go back to your lovely English drawing room. Copley has the complicated card and he just cannot play it. There's a set of reasons, some of which are about character and some of which are about timing. You know, one of the things that I learned from writing this book where Copley and Benjamin West, who are born months apart, are kind of doppelgangers and foils for each other. If you're going to immigrate across a vast and furious ocean and remake yourself in the world, do it when you're 18 and not when you're 38. So Copley is very well formed as what one of his fellow travelers on the Grand Tour says, someone who's been too long the hero of each little tale, right? He's He's been a, a very big fish in a very small pond, and he, he kind of can't slot himself into the ranks of courtiers and artists and, and hangers-on as well. It's also true that by the time Copley gets to England, you know, as the Declaration of Independence is approaching, right? He, he's on the Grand Tour in 74 and 75, and the family is reunited in England in 1776. Painting American stories for a British public is more complex. Right. I wanted to return to something you mentioned about the role of slavery in the North American economy. How does Copley specifically experience the institution of slavery? And perhaps you said that this is sort of propping up the prosperity of the North American colonies uh, in general, this exploitative, repressive institution. But how does Copley relate to it? Is it a big part of his story? It's a bigger part of his story than I think has ever before been known. And the role of slavery in the northern colonies is just really being recovered now by historians and especially filtering down to K-12 curricula, right? Um, you know, we, we have the understanding of American slavery that comes from the Civil War of a slaveholding South and an anti-slavery North, both designations too categorical even for the Civil War of 1861 to 1865, right? There are anti-slavery Southerners and not so much pro-slavery Northerners, but Northerners animated by racial prejudice. So I think we read that back into the colonial world. And it's certainly true that the prevalence of enslaved people is much higher in places where there's a cash crop economy. So highest in the Caribbean, which of course is the center of the Western Empire from through a London lens, uh, and then in the Deep South and in the Upper South. So in, in Copley's world in Boston, enslaved people comprise something between 2 and 5% of the population, which means that never a day went by that you wouldn't see somebody who was of African descent and who was either doing labor that free people didn't do 
or who was costumed in a way to designate their enslaved status, right? So wearing livery. That sounds small, right? Two to five percent. But if you look at the wealth of New England and of the middle colonies, the provisioning trade to the Caribbean is probably the most single, most economic important part of their world. You know, their slavery is offshore in Barbados and in Jamaica. So when Copley marries this very fortunate marriage to a a truly elite daughter of Boston, his father-in-law gives him enslaved children as gifts. That's the kind of detail of his life. It's been in plain sight since his letters were published in 1914, right? So there's there's no heroic discovery that Copley was himself a holder of property in persons. It's right there in the letters referring to these folks by name. I think it's our commitment now in the United States to really digging into what enslavement has meant to our history and our country and how we move forward as a people that makes that part of the past leap off the page in a way that, you know, several generations of the readers of those letters just didn't see it, not because they were derelict, but because the scholarship of their period was asking different questions. So I wouldn't say that slavery makes Copley. It does make his father-in-law, and his father-in-law makes Copley in some way. His father-in-law also breaks Copley because I think he's a decisive political rupture ensues because Copley's father-in-law, Richard Clark, is one of the tea merchants whose cargo goes into the drink in 1773. So it's there. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the talk you're going to give at ASU. At least in the brief description that I've read, you say that you want to sort of challenge this binary of competing narratives of U.S. history, sort of the slavery versus liberty, original sin versus germinal gift, as you put it. What is wrong with this depiction, at least in terms of nuance, but also what's wrong with this as an approach to American history and the founding of the United States, do you think? I think that um, both reverence and shame are sides of the same coin. What we need from the past, and I'll, I'll say this in my talk at ASU, what we need from the past above all is truth. And truth is complicated because people are complicated. We are not less complicated than people in the past. People in the past are not less complicated than us. We all live according to the dictates of our time, some of which we can see very clearly and some of which we can't. So I think either worship of or condescension to the people in the founding era impoverishes us of the actual tools, lessons, gifts, complicated inheritance that we are bequeathed in the early seasons of the making of this country. I'm interested especially in the K-12 space in what it means to train young people to seek after truth and to do it in ways that make their own beliefs feel a little less steady, a little less worthy of self-congratulation for all of the ways that they are alive and aware, I won't say woke, that their parents are not, a little less convinced that they know everything had they lived in earlier times that they would have 
done it better. Do you think that this is a growing problem or has it become a problem in the course of your career that particularly the founding moment of the United States has tended to become more and more characterized in these two binary contrasts? Or is that sort of a political narrative that's always been there throughout your career? Yeah, I think the United States has nothing but its story, right? Which is different. I'd be curious to hear how this sounds to you from the perspective of the Antipodes. So we don't share a common language. We never did. You know, something like 30% of the newspapers published in the British colonies at the time of the founding were in German. We don't share a common history. We don't share a sort of blood and soil sense of attachment to place unless the we we're speaking of are native and tribal nations you know, who have a vexed relationship to the United States as a sense of place. The story of the just-so story of America, right, how we got to be who we are, I think has been more important to our national history than any other national history that I can think of. And that fight started, you know, if not July 5th, certainly by 1786 or 1787. It has filtered through partisan political discourse at high levels before. You know, if you looked carefully at the history of the centennial, even the 50-year anniversary, certainly the bicentennial, you would find political hay being made one way or another. I think, and I'll, I'll say this in my ASU talk, we in 2022 have an extraordinary degree of moral confidence in our own opinion. I think that goes from left to right, really across the whole political spectrum. That seems perhaps new to me, and I would venture a guess, though I don't do work of this kind. It's shaped by a social media ecology that is, you know, entirely confirming of the righteousness of one's point of view. As a historian, I would say that the end of the fairness doctrine has something to do with the media bubbles in which we find ourselves, we are allowed to find ourselves. Do you as an instructor, as a professor at Harvard, try and push back against this? In the classroom, do you try and foster contentious debate about important political issues, or is it not really something that comes up, you know, in your classes about U.S. history? I can imagine that quite likely it could. Is it something that you're able to foster in in your own classroom? I think one has to engineer for it. When I was coming up, I graduated from college in 1985, and I took my graduate degree a decade or so later. I think, you, you know, one could assume that you would have robust, even Socratic-style debate in the classroom. I think our sense of what higher ed is for has not been explicit enough about that particular purpose, especially in the humanities. So I do, I do, you know, I do try to engineer for for engagement with the civic in the teaching of American history, both in the way assignments are structured, in the way that the language in a syllabus welcomes a diversity of opinion as well as other kinds of diversity that are prized on our campus. Sometimes it's more successful than others. I have, I'm toying with teaching a course on abortion. So I've started wondering what a course that, you know, explicitly worked with campus organizations on different sides of 
now one of the most vexed and present issues of American life that tried maybe even to engineer the student public for the percentage of public opinion on campus that had a class contract that said, you must be able to do these things or else this is not the class for you. I will confess that I'm not sure if I have the spine for it, but it ought to be done, right? Yeah, approaching these sorts of really contentious topics in the classroom, I'd say, is very fraught from an instructor's perspective because you just don't know how it's going to go. I mean, I've never had a situation in the classroom where I felt that the discussion was veering towards something really uncomfortable or nasty. I've always felt that my students uh, engage with each other very respectfully and in a productive way, but I've never gone towards topics that are so controversial and also so in the moment, right? And and I can completely understand why you might be a little bit uh, on the fence about whether you want to do it. We have tenure for a reason, right? The theory of tenure is that one should be able to be productively fearless in one's teaching and research. And I think in the present moment, we have a lot more sort of labor market defense of tenure than we do an actual substantive embodiment of what it allows one to do. So, you know, my husband often says to me, well, if not you, who should do that kind of work? I sort of agree. I actually attended the seminar at Duke a couple of weeks ago where a faculty member there gave a course to faculty members from other universities about how to teach a class that is specifically designed to discuss and debate contentious issues. And I'm going to teach a class like that next semester at ASU. So it was really interesting because there was it's the first time I've ever attended a pedagogy seminar, right? I go to lots of research seminars, but I've never been to a seminar about how to teach. And everyone at the seminar had put in the effort to go, right? They're all interested enough to do it, but everyone felt the same as you, that they just didn't know how far they wanted to push things in terms of the contentiousness of the topics, right? These pedagogical skills, too, are learned. And I think, I think we in the academy have a lot to answer for. The caricature of higher ed in American politics, especially but not only on the right, is wrong but not entirely, right? And the fact that we go to research seminars and not pedagogy seminars, this is the disease, not the symptom. And if civil disagreement skills are important to be training our kids in, they're important for us to be training in too. Harvard has an initiative called the Inter collegiate civil disagreement program that works with cohorts of students from four quite different campuses. So one, you know, we are one and one has a much higher percentage of Christian religious students, another a much higher percentage of military students. And they do coached discussions on on difficult issues with people presenting from different sides. And the students are in- incentivized to do the work. I mean, I, I do think there are models To me, the best outcome would be if students wanted to engage in that dialogue rather than to retreat to their affirming centers, right, the fabled safe spaces of the left, the shadow universities of the right, and give each other snaps and props. I think that is 
most of the ecology that we have now is the, you know, the space where the traumatized progressive student can hug a pillow and the space where the student on the right can go to hear a talk adjacent to campus that wouldn't be sponsored on campus. This is not the highest best purpose of a university. It's an interesting question as to the student demand for these types of courses, right? There are some places that have the goal of actually making a course focused on civil discourse and debate one of the first-year compulsory classes. But, of course, if students self-select into the class, then you would hope that they come there with an intention and a sense of goodwill to engage in these sorts of debates in good faith. And perhaps that's a promising way to start. It's a bit of an experiment. So, Jane, recently the president of the American Historical Association, I believe, James Sweet, gave a talk or published a a blog post where he critiqued what he called presentism. And it seems to me from the outside that this had a couple of different elements. One is that simply that historians are publishing too much about contemporary topics, which I thought was really interesting. But secondly, that he didn't think historians are taking people sort of meeting historical individuals where they are in terms of their own values and mores in their own times, but imposing a set of values and lens from today back onto the past. And he saw this as a major problem. And this seemed to spark quite a lot of pushback and controversy. So I guess it would be great if you could just maybe explain to me what this controversy was about and how you see it playing itself out and whether there's any major changes that the discipline of history needs to make or is going to make or what's going on here. Just as you're saying, I think Jim Sweet in his presidential column in the AHA's monthly newsletter, Perspectives, combined two questions. One is, what does it mean that so many of our students seeking advanced degrees are writing about the post-45 world, and especially are writing about America in the post-45. I had a question before we move on, which is, is that even true? Yes. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is, it's an empirical question, okay. backable by data, right. um, and cross-cuts with an essay that my history department colleague, former Harvard president Drew Faust, published in The Atlantic last week. People can't read handwriting. Oh, right they there, don't have the skills. There's a push towards the modern that I think is ideologically presentist in the way that Sweet's column touches on, but is also skills-based mm-hmm. and goes to our K-12 ecology, right? Like, will will we have a dark ages that extends all the way to the invention of the typewriter? And you, you must read Drew Faust's article. It's just... It's it's far more devastating. Wait, so he's so I know that from friends at grad school that were historians that it's very difficult to learn to read these types of old handwriting. And you know, my friends. This were is your mother's and, handwriting. And, but I'm talking about like German handwriting right. from the 19th century. And even as a Germanist, I found I, I was very difficult. It would take me weeks to learn how to read it. But you're saying that I'm ta- young I'm talking can't about Palmer method handwriting. handwriting. They can't read it because it's stopped being taught. And Faust's makes the argument in this essay, which I had never thought about, but it stops being taught at a very particular moment, which is when the Common Core writes cursive out of the curriculum in 2010. Oh, well, I had no idea that this had happened. I've seen this in my own classroom. She cites a heartbreaking example in this article where she says a, a student decided not to pursue her passion of learning more about Virginia Woolf because it would have meant reading a series of handwritten letters. 
this is a skills-based push towards presentism, which isn't actually in Sweet's purview. Right. You but know, it's significant nonetheless. It is significant nonetheless. And I do think the push to write the immediate prequel of The Glory of Us is real and is more real in U.S. history than it is in many national fields, including in African history, where Jim Sweet is the preeminent Africanist of his generation, hence the AHA presidency. The other form of presentism that Sweet is talking about is having the sort of urgencies of the present, especially around race, distort what we ask of and find in the past. I think he's talking about something quite different from what I described when I talked about Copley and slavery a little while ago, which is we all live in a present, right? We all do our research from, you know, it's a, it's a little warm in this room in Arizona in September in 2022. We all live in a body and look from that standpoint at some other place, other time and try to make sense of it. And so different things stand out, right? I, I trained doing the history of women in the United States. Nobody trained doing the history of women in the United States before really 1970. I mean, you know, people who got their PhDs in 1970 were doing their second book on women's history because you couldn't do a dissertation on it. It seems salutary that the women's movement led people to say, wait, there were women in the past too, weren't they? What were they doing? And what are the different ways that that question mattered? So our present informs our questions about the past I don't think there's anything to use the most overused word of 2022 problematic uh -huh. about that. <laughs> the question, though, of not taking the people of the past on their own terms, we're not prosecutors, mm. right? We're not prosecutors. We're not ministers. We're not giving funeral sermons about their excellencies. We're not putting them in the docket. We're seeking, I think, always to understand how did so-and-so do such-and-such, and was it right by the standards of her day? Mm -hmm. You know, what led her to believe that that was a good idea? Mm -hmm. Who else agreed? Not holding always ourselves up as the greater moral arbiters of their world. I think that's real. I think there's a whole set of reasons behind the shift that he detects that he couldn't go into in a column of that length. Mm -hmm. I think the extraordinary conflation in the response on Twitter, especially, or so I've heard because I'm not on Twitter, uh, <laughs> Neither am I. the conflation of I disagree with you mm -hmm. and therefore I was harmed by what you right, said. Right, because he issued an apology for harm caused by the by the newsletter. He did indeed. And I will say that I am very glad that he is continuing as president of my disciplinary organization. And I'm very sorry that he issued an apology. Mm. It's terrible when one's writing make people feel bad. I tend to think that the answer to that is for those people to write. So 
the AHA will do a plenary session about this question of the present and the past, not about the column, but about some of the important issues that it laid back. We'll do that in January uh, in Philadelphia at our annual meeting. I'm one of the panelists on that session. I look forward to sort of lengthier and more nuanced exploration of it than a 500-word column. It sounds like it'll be a very interesting session. Jane, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we are out of time, but this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much for visiting us here at ASU, and thank you very much for being on the Keeping It Civil podcast. It's my pleasure, and have a great rest of your day.